Hey friends, thanks for clicking the button and watching this today. We are so glad you are with us. Hey, we've got lots of things that are going on here at Christ Community Church. Be sure to check out our website. Uh, we've got events on there. We've got groups that you can get connected with, uh, lots of different things that are happening. So be sure to check that out. Um, also like and subscribe uh, to our channel so that you are notified when there's more content coming out. Um, but we hope today that you enjoy this message. Amen. You can go ahead and take your seat. Yeah. All right. We're glad that you are here. Um, and those who are watching um, this uh, recording, many people, it's in our traditions group. Uh, hello to our traditions group and our friends in LaSalle and any others who are watching this later. Um, Welcome. We're so glad that all of you are engaging in our, our time together. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to John chapter 11. We're in the midst of a teaching series where we're, we're walking through the book of John. At John 11, it, it literally marks the halfway point of this book. It is literally the midpoint of this book. And I was doing some research and discovered that the midpoint of a story or a novel is actually a critically important part of the story. This is how one author writing website described it. The midpoint is the point of no return in the story, where the character, the main character, undergoes a crisis. Enlightenment cracks the shutters. The main character begins to wake up to the qualities necessary to reverse the misfortune or pursue the action of the book through to a resolution. When I was reading that, I, was, I realized that's exactly what's happening in John chapter 11. There is a significant shift in focus. John 11 is a point of no return for Jesus where he resolutely commits himself to his mission to reverse the misfortune of humanity. So a friend of mine, Luke Brower, who's a part of our church, we were talking last week after the sermon and he mentioned to me that he feels like he's done some study in John. He feels like there's a specific moment in John chapter 11 where this, this very thing happens, a specific moment. And the more I thought about what he said, the more I think he is absolutely right. The significant turning point, this midpoint in the book of John occurs in verse 38 of chapter 11. We looked at this passage last week. Jesus is standing before the tomb of Lazarus, who has been dead for four days. And Jesus has just seen firsthand all the pain and the heartache and the grief that this death has caused in the hearts of his friends. And so we're told in verse 38 that Jesus, once more deeply moved, uh, John tells us he's deeply moved, right? He comes to the tomb. And we saw last week that this phrase, deeply moved, literally means to snort in anger. It is this emotion of indignation. So Jesus is standing at the tomb of his friend, and he is seeing the pain and the agony that death causes to humanity. And he is filled with indignation, with anger at death. And my friend Luke and I both believe that it is at this moment that Jesus comes to this visceral, renewed conviction. Death is going down. I'm going to do whatever it takes to defeat this enemy once and for all, not just for Lazarus, but for the entire human race. And so the rest of this book, the rest of this book is all about that mission. It is, it is all about the extent to which Jesus is going to go to demonstrate his love in order to defeat death and give us life. 
So from here on out, Jesus is on this mission of extravagant love, and John is going to focus our attention there. And he does so right here in John 11, the end of John 11, in a very fascinating way. Look with me beginning in verse 45. Therefore, this is right after the death of uh, the, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Okay, so, so after Lazarus is raised from the dead, a number of people who saw this miracle, they actually believed in him, John says. But the others run off to the religious authorities in Jerusalem to let them know what happened. And these leaders immediately call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like the supreme, our supreme court. And these guys are trying to figure out what needs to be done. Verse 47, what are we accomplishing, they ask. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, notice their concern. It is not just that people are going to start believing in Jesus. They also have political concerns. They are concerned that a Messiah figure like Jesus, who is gathering large crowds, is going to cause the Roman government to get nervous and to react in a negative way against the entire nation of Israel and, and start banning their religious practices and all of that. Okay, now within this Sanhedrin, there was appointed a high priest who was sort of like the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, right? And, and, and at this moment in this discussion that they're having about Jesus, the high priest stands up to say something that he thinks is incredibly profound. But what he says becomes this, this mic drop moment in history. Because he unintentionally articulates the mission of Jesus. He articulates what Jesus came to do. Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas is arrogantly jumping in with his assessment, and he's criticizing everyone else as being fools. You guys know nothing at all, boys. I mean, here's what's really going on. It is way better, he says, it's way better for Jesus to die than for our entire nation to be destroyed by Rome. So we just need to kill him. See, that's what Caiaphas is trying to say. That's the argument he's making. But ironically, the language he uses is unintentionally prophetic. And this is, this is sort of hilarious, right? The high priest is unintentionally articulating the mission of Jesus for all the world to see. Look again at his words. <clears throat> it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. The high priest of the Sanhedrin is proclaiming the gospel and he doesn't even know it. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied. <clears throat> 
that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. See, John is saying that the high priest is, is, is giving us this very clear explanation as to the mission of Jesus. Jesus' mission is to die for people. And as John adds here, not just for the Jewish people, John tells us that Jesus' mission is to die for all people, which raises this obvious question, why do we need someone to die for us? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, the most amazing person who has ever lived, have to die? And this is where the book of John is so fun because he gives us these little directional hints in the midst of his writing. It's sort of like he's continually hiding these Easter eggs, um, hoping that we're going to find them. Um, well, one of his Easter eggs in this passage is the fact that Caiaphas is the high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest. And every Jew reading John's account would know that the high priest, one of the main roles of the high priest is that he was the one who on the day of atonement, once a year, would actually enter, he was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies at the temple, the presence, the presence of God, and he would present to God a specific offering to make atonement for the people. The word atonement, it's the Hebrew word kapur, it means to repay a debt. It means to, and it also means to purify. So, so it's, its ultimate purpose, atonement, its ultimate purpose is to bring restoration to a relationship that has been damaged by sin. And part of that offering on the day of atonement was a blameless animal giving his life on behalf of sinful people. This was a substitutionary death on behalf of the people. And again, it was the high priest and only the high priest who could do this once a year. So no wonder John wanted us to know that it was the high priest who was the one actually proclaiming that Jesus had to die for the people. That this, this priest who once a year facilitated the atonement offering is unintentionally declaring Jesus to be that atonement offering for us. He who didn't deserve to die gives his life on behalf of those who deserve to die. And in this grace-filled exchange, we experience life. We can actually enter into the very presence of God. We can return to the garden. We can return to the garden and find life in him. Now, we tend to, when we hear this gospel, all that, we tend to focus only on the individual impact of Jesus' death on the cross. But notice how John describes this impact. Look again at this. Beginning of verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. And check this out. To bring them together and make them one. See, I love this. John is saying that Jesus died not just for us as individuals, but he died to create a new community of people who are one in him. 
In other words, he died to create a family of children of God who are loved by him and being transformed by him and are one in him. This amazing family that crosses ethnic barriers and socioeconomic barriers and gender barriers, all of that, right? It's just amazing, eclectic family that he, he died to bring this family together of children of God who are one in him. The other day I was, um, I was playing golf with a, with a guy and we started to talk about spiritual things. And at one point he said, my sanctuary on Sunday is right up there. And he pointed to the mountains, um, which, which I totally affirmed. I mean, I too feel God's presence when I'm in, in, in the mountains and I'm enjoying the beauty of the mountains and all that. But I, but I also mentioned to this man, just kind of mentioned how when that's our only experience of God, we're missing something else. We're missing something beautiful that Jesus died to create. It's not just his creation. He died to create this family of people who have been touched by the love of Jesus and who, because of that love, they love each other and they help each other and they encourage each other in their relationship with God. See, worshiping Jesus in the mountains is incredible. And so, too, is experiencing Jesus in a community of faith in, in relationship with others who love him and, and who love us. See, Jesus died so that we could experience both of those expressions of his heart. All right, so verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I mean, this, this just oozes irony, right? Here are these high and mighty religious leaders who have their plan to save their nation by killing this rabble-rouser Jesus guy. And in doing their plan, they are unintentionally going to fulfill, going to fulfill God's plan all along. They're going to be fulfilling his plan all along. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So, so Jesus temporarily removes himself from public until the strategic moment arrives, a moment that God has ordained and orchestrated from the beginning. That's what this is leading up to, all the things he's talking about, right, that the, the high priest is predicting, that that's coming here. And notice how John tells us that this strategic moment, it's going to occur during Passover, which is kind of another Easter egg here, right? In the sense of John not hiding something, but there's, there are allusions here. I mean, think about Passover. It, it points, Passover itself points to the mission of Jesus, right? That's when this is happening, and it points to the mission of Jesus. The whole celebration of Passover was remembering God's deliverance from death. How? Through the blood of a lamb placed on the doorposts. See, what, what, what Passover has pointed to for centuries is now about to be fulfilled. <laughs> it's going to be fulfilled. Jesus, the Passover lamb, is going to give his life for us so that we might experience life. And again, this mi mission, it is rooted in Jesus' love for us. That's what's going on here. John is telling us this throughout the book. John 3, 16, very familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John 10, 
Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, I'm the one making this decision. And it's out of love because I'm a good shepherd. I'm making this decision. So Jesus, look, Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission. He is deliberately choosing to defeat our ultimate enemy, death, and to give us life by laying down his life. And it's all because of his extravagant love for us, which is incredible. This is incredible. I mean, just think for a moment. Just think about how much Jesus loves you and me when he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus. And he's like, this is going down. Not just for Lazarus. This is going down for humanity. This is how much he loves you. He was willing to give his life for you and for me. Okay, when, when that kind of extravagant love begins to permeate our hearts, <clears throat> some significant things begin to happen inside of us. And that's what we see next happening in this passage. John shows us, John 12 Verse 1, the Bible didn't come with chapter and verse breaks. Those are put in later. So this is just, we're just going right from chapter 11 to chapter 12 because this is, this is all a part of this passage, okay? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. So Jesus returns now, six days before Passover, he returns to Bethany, which we had just read about in John chapter 11 last week. Bethany was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And, and at, the, at this moment in time, Lazarus has already been raised from the dead. At this moment in time, a banquet was given. They knew Jesus was going to be there. A banquet was given in his honor. They wanted to celebrate Jesus for who he is and for what he had done with Lazarus, all right? And so we're told late, we're actually told later in the passage that when word got out about Jesus being in Bethany, quite a few people from Jerusalem came to see Jesus. And they came to see Lazarus, who was like a walking signpost. He was a walking testimony of Jesus' power. They wanted to see Lazarus. So at this banquet, in Jesus' honor, John tells us that Martha served and Lazarus was reclining at the table. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. I heard a, a pastor make a comment about this that I hadn't really ever thought of. But what we see here in that statement, we see two very specific responses to who Jesus is and what he came to do. One response, as Martha demonstrates, is to serve him. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, it is an honor, it is a privilege to serve him, to use our gifts and our abilities to serve others in Jesus' name. Right? And the other response is, to, is the response of Lazarus. It is to bear witness to Jesus. It is to share what he has done in our lives, to be a living testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives. So Martha and Lazarus, they symbolize the expected typical response to who Jesus is, that of serving Jesus and sharing about Jesus. Now, while both of those are important, there, there is a more foundational response that John focuses in on and he wants us to do the same. So as Martha is serving and Lazarus is reclining at the table, Martha's sister Mary enters the scene. 
verse 3, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, now we, we talked about this Mary two weeks ago. When in Luke 10, Martha, kind of a similar situation, they're, 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 they're hosting Jesus in their home. This isn't necessarily in their home. We don't know for sure. But in, in Luke 10, it was in their home. Martha's busy serving. But Mary, remember, was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he said. And Martha tried to get Jesus to get Mary to help her. And Jesus gently rebuked Martha and said that Mary had chosen what is better and it was not going to be taken from her, okay? That was, that was Luke 10. And then last week in John 11, we saw how when Jesus came to their home after Lazarus had died, Martha, Martha, if you were here, you remember Martha was more focused on details and theology. But Mary fell at Jesus' feet and wept. And when Jesus saw her weeping, he was moved to tears as well. See, Martha got a theological answer from Jesus. Mary moved Jesus' heart. There's something here about Mary. Sounds like a movie title. Uh, but there, there's something here, there is. There's something here about Mary that the New Testament writers want us to hone in on. Luke and also John, they want us to hone in on this. While it is certainly important to serve Jesus and be a witness for Jesus, those things are ultimately to flow out of a much deeper heart reality, the heart response that Mary demonstrated, listening to Jesus, opening her heart to Jesus. And now here in this passage, as she breaks open this jar of perfume and she uses it to anoint Jesus' feet, See, Mary's experience of Jesus' extravagant love for her moved her to love him extravagantly. We're told in verse 3 that Mary took about a pint of pure nard, which was a very expensive perfume. How expensive? Well, later in verse 5, Judas makes the comment that it was worth a year's wages. Now, think about that for a moment. The median income in the United States right now is about $44,000, the annual income. So imagine choosing to give away something in your house that is worth $44,000. We, we don't know if Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were wealthy or if this was like a fairly heirloom, family heirloom. We don't know. What we do know is that this jar of perfume was worth a lot of money, way beyond the price of a bottle of perfume today. So we're told that she took this perfume and she poured it on Jesus' feet. It was, it was very common in that day to pour oil or perfume on someone's head, but not on their feet because the feet were viewed as being dirty. So servants were the ones who were entrusted, you know, to wash guests' feet. But Mary assumes this posture of humility and she begins pouring this perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping his feet with her hair. And in order to do that, she would have to let her hair down, which is something that women in that culture did not do because it would have been a sign of loose morals. But none of that mattered to Mary. She, she, she wasn't measuring public opinion. You know, she, didn't, she, she wasn't thinking about what anyone else thought of her 
She wasn't worrying about the financial impact of this gift. She was simply responding to Jesus' love with this beautiful and costly demonstration of love. See, look, friends, this is, this is what happens. This is what happens in us when Jesus' love begins to penetrate and permeate our hearts at the deepest of levels. It, be, it, it actually loosens our obsession with what other people think of us. It loosens our tenacious hold on our money and our things. Everything else pales in comparison to the value of Jesus in our hearts. Everything else. When we begin to experience his love permeating us, everything else sort of pales in comparison to that. I heard, heard someone recently say that we, we tend to base our identity, we, we're always looking for you know, value and identity. We tend to base that on three things, what we have, what we do, or what other people think of us. So when our hearts attach themselves to these three things as being ultimate things, I gotta have what people, I gotta have this, I gotta, when our hearts attach themselves to these three things, or any of these three, three things, as an ultimate thing, the result is fear, and anxiety, and stress, and conflict. When we set our value, our ultimate love on these things, what we have, what we do, or what other people think of us, it messes with our lives. I know, I mean, this is totally me. This is the journey I find myself on, right? When, I, when I'm feeling anxious, when I'm, feel, when I'm feeling angry, I can almost guarantee, almost guarantee, it's because I'm attaching my heart to what I have, what I can do, or what other people think of me. And it messes with me. It messes my, with my relationships. See, Mary, Mary shows us a completely different way to live. It is to place our highest value, our ultimate treasure, not on what we have, what we do, or what other people think of us, but to place it on Jesus, who has poured out his extravagant love for us on the cross. See, that the more we do that, in other words, the more we live in and abide in his extravagant love for us, Here's the deal. The more we abide in that, guess what? The freer our hearts become. The freer our hearts become. We are actually freed to offer Jesus all that we have and all that we are and our reputation and our trophies and our ways of measuring value and our time and our resources. We are freed to extravagantly offer our lives to Jesus in response to his extravagant love for us. See, Mary's experience of Jesus' love for her set her free to love him with her whole heart, with her whole life. And that's, that's what happens. That's what happens when we truly experience Jesus' extravagant love for us. We joyfully, freely offer him everything. And here's the deal. When we're not experiencing his extravagant love in the depth of our being. When, we, when we're not experiencing that, guess what? The opposite is the case. Check out what happens next. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas is bothered by this extravagance, the extravagance of Mary's gift. Now, he, he couches his comments, as we often do. He couches his comments in the spiritual language about caring for the poor. 
But he didn't care for the poor. What it actually revealed, his comments revealed what was actually going on in his heart. He, he, he didn't want all this expense wasted on Jesus. Why? Because Judas, Judas' treasure, his value, his identity was, um, his, his love was money and things. And his heart was in bondage to that. So rather than rejoicing in this love gift given to Jesus and the fragrance of the sacrifice that filled the room, what a great picture, right? Rather than rejoicing in that, Judas is bothered by it. He complains about it. Do, do you see that this, this clear, this is so important, friends, do you see in this passage the clear, direct connection between love for Jesus and freedom? And, 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 and the connection between a lack of love for Jesus and bondage. Mary is so filled with appreciation and love for Jesus that she joyfully pours this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet as an expression of pure devotion and love. Judas, on the other hand, is so filled with love for money that he gets upset. He gets upset when a gift like this is given to Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him for it. Verse seven, leave her alone. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. I love that. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Notice how Jesus views her gift to him. Did you notice this? To Jesus, it was not a waste. Rather, it beautifully aligns with his mission, right? He knows he's going to die. We've already talked about it. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die. And he sees her demonstration of love through that same lens of love. Her expression of sacrificial love once again touched his heart. Mary is always touching his heart because she loves him. She's touching his heart. Her, her expression of sacrificial love touched her heart. And Judas' response didn't. It didn't. Jesus rebukes Judas for his criticism of this beautiful sacrificial act of love. See, no notice what this means. Jesus' heart Jesus' heart is moved, is moved when our love for him moves us to give of ourselves sacrificially to him. Mary's heart moved the heart of Jesus. Her heart moved the heart of Jesus, not because of all that she was doing for Jesus, but in the simple sacrificial act of giving to him something that was precious to her. It moved his heart. I don't know about you, but man, I want to move Jesus' heart like that. So in the, in the story, we have Mary and we have Judas, both of whom at this point are followers of Jesus. They, they, are, they are in his band of disciples, of followers. But only one of their hearts is actually captured by Jesus. Only one of them actually moved the heart of Jesus. So where, where are you and I in this story? I mean, I, so often in John, we just, we can place ourselves in a story that's, so where are you and I in this story? Are we more like Judas or Mary? 
What, what measure of love for Jesus do our lives demonstrate? What, what, would, what would our friends or family or coworkers say? What, what measure of love do our lives demonstrate? What would, our, what would the people who know us say? Would they say, man, that person really loves Jesus? Look at how they live. Look at the, the, just this, the, the way they're sacrificing for it. They, that person really loves Jesus. Or would they say, man, that person really loves their football team? Well, they really love their, their car. They really love their reputation or, or whatever because they sacrifice so much for that. Now, please hear me. Look, this is not about guilt or obligation. This isn't some appeal for you to give more to the church or serve more or whatever. This is simply about love. <laughs> this is simply about love. This is about your heart and my heart. How, here, here, and here's the, here's the key issue. How are we responding to the extravagant love of Jesus for us? That's what this is about. How are we responding to the extravagant love of Jesus for us? As I was working on praying about this passage this morning, I just thought of, it came to my mind, Revelation chapter 2, where, where Jesus is rebuking kind of the church at Ephesus. And, and, and if you're familiar with that passage, what he says is you're doing all these amazing things, but you've lost your first love. You don't love me like you used to. So let me just, let me, let me ask it this way. What, what would it look like in your life for your heart to be captured by the love of Jesus more than any other love? What would that look like? What, what sacrifices would you joyfully embrace for him? What gifts would you freely give to him. I mean, let me say it this way. If, if Jesus, the son of God, who gave his life for us on the cross, if he walked in this room right now and he was standing right here in our presence, would any gift of love that we give to him be too extravagant? Would any gift of love that we give to him right now, would it be too extravagant in terms of the time you give to care for an aging parent with Alzheimer's? They don't even remember who you are. You're still caring for them. Or, or the excruciating pain, excruciatingly painful choice to forgive someone who hurt you. Or the decision to elevate someone else rather than yourself or to give, give our place to someone else. Or the decision to obey Jesus in our sexuality when the world is telling us something different. Or our willingness to give to Jesus a sacrificial financial gift that makes no sense to our friends or our accountant. <laughs> Would any costly gift be too extravagant for Jesus? Would any sacrifice we make be more than he deserves? <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't help but think of that old hymn when I survey, that there, here's the final verse. And many of you may know this. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. Let's pray.
So Holy Spirit, we, we thank you for this amazing passage and showing us so much of God's heart, your heart in this passage, Lord. So let's just quiet our hearts right now as we respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you and to me. First of all, I want us to begin, I'll just lead us in some um, responses here. First of all, I I want us to begin by just take a moment and reflect on Jesus' extravagant love for you. He, He looked at the tomb of Lazarus. He saw the pain of death and he said, death is going down. I'm gonna vanquish this enemy and it's gonna cost me my life, but I'm willing to do that because of my love for you. So I want you just to open your heart afresh to his love for you. He gave his all for you and me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for saying yes to the cross for me. You know, there may be some of you here, and just as we're in that place of enjoying this love, maybe some of you here and you've never, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never entered into this relationship with him what you're hearing now. It's like, I want that. It's not about religion. It's not about trying hard. It's not about just trying to clean up your life. It's just about saying yes to Jesus' death on the cross for you. So that's you. Just pray this prayer with me. If you're watching, you're here in person, just pray this prayer with me in the quiet of your heart. Dear Jesus, I want to say yes to you. Thank you for giving your life as a sacrifice for me as a way to forgive my sin and cleanse me and atone me and restore my relationship with God. Thank you. And I place my trust in you alone. I receive this gift. Thank you. Thank you. Just come live in me, Lord. Change me from the inside out through the power of your extravagant love. If anyone prayed that prayer, Lord, I'm just, I pray for them to grow in their relationship with you. It's an amazing relationship with you. So as we're in, enjoying the extravagant love of Jesus, I wanna, I wanna transition this prayer to another response. I want you to imagine yourself at the feet of Jesus and your heart is just filled with love for him because of who he is and all that he's done. So let me just ask, and you can ask your heart this, what, what, in that place, what gift, what sacrifice is being stirred in your heart to offer to him as an expression of your love? What, what would touch his heart?
God, we want to love you. We want to touch your heart with our lives, that our lives would just be a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to you. And whatever that sacrifice is, when it costs us something, it costs us time, it costs us reputation, it costs us, you know, just these desires of our heart that we want to pursue, but we're saying no to that. Whatever it costs us, maybe it's financial, whatever it costs us, it's worth it for you. And we just want our lives to touch your heart. We want to be like Mary. I want to be like Mary. We love you. Jesus, we love you, not just with our words. We want to love you with our lives. And I pray, Lord, for the freedom of that, entering into that place, the freedom of experiencing your extravagant love and just wanting to offer ourselves in response. Thank you, Jesus. You are so worthy. So friends, wherever you are at after this message, um, I hope that we can be a support to you. If you want to pray with somebody, um, we have that available. If you want to just talk with somebody, you can go onto our website, click on the chat button, and we have people there that would love to chat with you, pray with you, um, and just help you process. So I hope you leave today inspired, um, and I hope that you find peace and joy throughout your week.